Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Stephen Rabe, author of the book, The Lost Paratroopers of Normandy, a story of resistance, courage, and solidarity in a French village. Steve, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark, and uh, hello, everyone. My name is is Steve Rabe, and I'm a retired university professor, um, um, and I'm glad to be here. So, what was your specialism when you were uh, in when you were uh, a university professor? Yes, uh, well, I was a university professor for forty five years, Mark, uh, principally at the University of Texas at Dallas. I finished up my career, my last three years, uh, at the Honors College at the University of Oregon, and my field of specialty was U.S. relations uh, with Latin America. Um, I'm fairly widely published. I've published this, uh, my book here on the, the Lost Paratroopers of Normandy is my uh, 13th book. Uh, so this is something new and different for me in that I'm not a military historian, but rather an historian of inter-American relations. So what led you to write a book about uh, an episode of the Normandy invasion and its uh, aftermath? Well, that's a long and very complicated question. Um, <laughs> The book has been in my mind for maybe for 60 years. Uh, I'm now 74, uh, maybe even for 65 years. Uh, But um, I didn't get to this book because academic life kept getting in the way that I was writing. I was teaching at the University of Texas at Dallas, and I did a lot of teaching abroad, something I want to emphasize here because uh, this is a a book that has uh, perspectives from from a variety of uh, countries that I, I had the privilege during my career of teaching in um, 20 countries and teaching uh, uh, particularly in Latin America. I taught a great deal and I taught for a year in uh, Finland and I taught for a year in Ireland, something I think that gave me uh, training in terms of looking at history from multiple perspectives. But what led me to do this? Well, uh, one of the lost paratroopers of the 160 or so paratroopers who are near the village of Grand Normandy during the period from June 6th to Uh, 16 June, one of the paratroopers was my father. So I always knew that there was something there that I ought to investigate about um, my father. Uh, My father told me uh, when I was very young that he had been hidden for three days by a friendly French family up in the loft of a barn while being surrounded by Germans. He didn't say much more about it than that, but I knew that. I knew that. I was always a little bit confused of what was this about. Uh, My father did impart to me a variety of so-called war stories because he he had a career where he had seven weeks of, of combat in Normandy. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He jumped over the Rhine River. Uh, He was in combat in the Rhineland area. He participated with other people in freeing slave laborers in the Rhineland area. And then he did occupation duty in Berlin in the second half of 1945. So my father had told me a lot of stories, but there was this one thing that kind of confused me of uh, how, because he had a lot of Normandy stories, but how it was it that he um, spent three days in a barn, in the loft of a barn, uh, hidden by a friendly uh, French family. And um, how did this all fit in? So uh, as I began to wind down in my career, 
finally, I began to get to something that I was very, very interested in doing. And my initial impetus was simply to trace his entire uh, movement across Europe from essentially my father had the, you know, participated in one of the most epic journeys in human history, uh, literally from Normandy to Berlin. And, um, you know, I was thinking of doing that, that, that whole sort of thing, but it gradually occurred to me that the story of Gren was something that I ought to pick up. So you tell the story of the paratroopers who were in Gren uh, in the uh, first days of the Normandy invasion, but you begin by talking a bit about the, the the three groups that are involved. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us begin by telling us a bit about the the paratroopers and who they were like, and and and, and why were they you know different from other soldiers? Right. Um, one of as I said at the beginning here, I'm not a military historian, and while there is a chapter on the battles that take place in Grin, I was more interested in this kind of social cultural relationships between the people involved, particularly the paratroopers and the people of, of the village of Grin, a village of about 900 people uh, in Normandy. So my first chapter is about the paratroopers who were who they were, uh, what type of people were they, uh, how you know how did they come to join the paratroopers, what were their formative influences. And like a good historian, of course, I, I particularly found that the, probably the formative influence in their life was the Great Depression, that people who joined the paratroopers paratroopers were volunteers. They were often discouraged by superior officers not to join the paratroopers because this is going to be extremely dangerous operation. In the case of my father, he was uh, called in by his commanding officer at his basic training and warned in scatological terms, do not do not do this. You're just simply going to die. So why did such people join? Well, one, they were getting uh, $50 extra a month in pay for being a paratrooper. But more than that, most of the men uh, were were highly ambitious, but had been frustrated by the Depression. They couldn't finish their education. Most of the enlisted men uh, did not have high school degrees. Most of the officers had a year or so of college, loved college, but dropped out because they didn't have money. So they they were highly ambitious people. Uh, they wanted to they wanted to earn extra money to help their families. Uh, and uh, the paratroopers were looking for these highly ambitious, highly intelligent uh, uh, people who showed enormous amounts of initiative. Uh, surprisingly, I didn't uh, realize this, that a paratrooper, in order to be qualified to join the paratroopers, had to score on the basic army test, had to achieve a score that would have qualified them to be an officer, because they, there was a great deal of emphasis on the paratroopers on showing initiative and doing things on your own without the direction of senior officers. That's something that comes across in your description of the operation when they when they're being dropped in uh, in on uh, the sixth of June, which is that it's it, you, we have you know, very clear images of the Normandy invasion. We think of the uh, the landing craft landing and 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 the soldiers you know storming onto the beaches and getting shot at, and as you described for the paratroopers, it was a very different approach, which is that they're literally being dropped behind those lines. They're literally being surrounded by the enemy. And I was thinking in particular about your description of the drop, how what how they were being dropped with 
uh, with with enough ammunition to to last him for an indeterminate period of time. One person, I, I, the one that sticks with me is how one was being dropped with a telephone switchboard attached to them. This and and, and how that how that required a, a, a different approach in terms of soldiering than you would get from your, your standard GI or even an elite soldier like, say, a ranger. Correct. Um, the overall commander of the uh, paratroopers of the 82nd Airborne was General James Gavin, who at the time was the youngest uh, major general uh, uh, in the United States since George Custer. And General General Gavin had some very specific uh, uh, issues in terms of what a paratrooper had to be. One, that a paratrooper had to be self-reliant. He assumed that when they hit in Normandy, he had already had experience in landing in Italy, that there would be total confusion, that paratroopers would have to find other paratroopers. They would have to show initiative. They would have to seek the objectives on their own without necessarily the command of General Gavin or high, other high-ranking officers. He he also wanted his men to be extremely physically fit. And that's the other thing about the paratroopers. You had to be very physically fit. The training is brutal, uh, almost like a, you know Navy SEAL training today. Uh, uh, General Gavin's idea would be to take a 25-mile march, uh, uh, maneuver all night, and then march back another 25 miles without rest. Uh, General Gavin wanted his paratroopers to be as physically fit as a Olympic athletes. So he had a very specific things in mind for paratroopers. And the other thing is that he, you know, there was an emphasis on being extremely tough. Uh, General Gavin made it quite clear to, to his paratroopers. They were hit there for one thing and one thing only, and that was to kill Germans. And as he told them repeatedly, we'll get home as soon as you kill all the Germans. So he, he's <laughs> creating a kind of very special force of physically fit, highly intelligent, highly self-reliant people who who understood that their mission uh, was to kill Germans. There's also the question of the opposition because they were also facing troops that were regarded as amongst the lead. I, I was wondering if you could tell something about their opponents when they uh, after when they that they engaged with uh, after they landed in Gren, in particular the, uh, the 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 Panzer Grenadiers. All right. Well, first off, I think for it's important for those for future readers to understand that these nine sticks of paratroopers, as long as one stick of the 101st Airborne and a couple of other scattered people were as a group the most off-target people so that they went to the village you know they landed in the village of Gren which was a village that was unoccupied although there are Germans everywhere and the decision had been made by the commanding officer that they could never get back they were 20 miles off target they could never get back to their original mission and so they were going to um, uh, accede to the wishes of the villagers and defend the village now um, and then with the ultimate uh, result being our hope result being that, that the landing forces at, at Omaha Beach would eventually reach them. And in fact, by uh, June 9th, a couple of people from Omaha Beach had actually wandered into the village of Grant. Unbeknownst to the paratroopers, unbeknownst to the people in the village of Gren, is that a new military unit, which was about 200 miles south in the kind of southwestern part of uh, of uh, of uh, France, about 200 miles from from the village of Gren, the 17th Panzer Grenadier, the Waffen SS, were heading towards them. The uh, 17th Waffen SS was a brand new. Uh, SS unit that had been training in southeastern France for about 
seven or eight months. Their mission, in which they embarked upon June 7th, was to move towards the uh, port town of Kerata. Now, the port town of Kerata lies astride between Omaha and Utah beaches. And so they were marching and moving from June 7th on towards Kerata. But uh, some 10 kilometers just south of Karatau is the village of Gren, and the 17th uh, Waffen-SS division is heading directly towards them. Now, who were these people? Well, I mean, I could, you know, I could uh, give you a sophisticated answer, but I could just get, get right to the heart of it. These are the worst of the worst. These are people who fight terror war. Uh, these are people who are trained literally to be murderers. Uh, this is the Waffen-SS under the general direction of Heinrich Hiller, Heinrich Himmler and dedicated directly and loyally to Adolf Hitler. Uh, the the many of this was a brand new military unit. Many of the men were only sixteen or seventeen or eighteen years of age. They're very very young. They were they're, they're non commissioned officers and officers were drawn from other SS units. Most of their NCOs, most of their uh, officers had been on the Eastern Front. Uh, one battalion leader and many of the people had had duty in concentration camps. These are extremely hard and uh, vicious people in charge of a very large group of very young men. And they're heading for the village of Gren on, um, on, um, beginning on uh, one day after D-Day. I was wondering if you could t- tell us a bit now about the village of Gren itself, because they're v- central to what you're talking about. This, your, yours is not a book just about uh, you know German soldiers fighting American soldiers. Yours is about the contact that uh, the the people of Gren had, and as you explain, it's a contact that is shaped a lot by the ex- four years of occupation that they've experienced leading up to the Normandy invasion. Correct. And, and really, I think it's something, again, I would emphasize to potential readers, is that the heart of the book is about the people in the village of Gren. Now, Gren is an historic and old village. It has about 900 people. It has a 12th century Roman, a wonderful 12th century Romanesque church. Most of the people in the village are farmers. Now, there's some variety of unique things. And what they do there, particularly, they have livestock, the famous Normandy cows, and they're also involved in, in producing the famous Calvados liqueur. Now, this village is unique in a variety of ways in terms of Norman village. Unlike, say, the famous village of Santa, uh, Santa Marie, Eglise, uh, uh, this is a village that is not actually formally occupied by the Germans. So there are Germans all around. But as such, this gave the people of the village a little bit of space to kind of grouse about the occupation of the Germans. It's a village that is, you know, 99.9% Catholic. It's a village in which that has existed for centuries in which there's a great deal of interlocking marriage relationships between the people. Everyone knows everyone. And for the most part, everyone is related to everyone. Now, they had um, a whole variety of issues with the Germans, as did other occupied people in France. Um, they, many of the middle-aged men in the village were veterans of World War I. Um, the man who, who hides, whose family hides 21 paratroopers in the loft of the barn, he still carries uh, shrapnel from World War I in his knee. 
Most of them resented or had uh, uh, children uh, who were being held as hostages in Germany at the end of World War One, or at the end of the World War excuse me at the end of World War Two, when at the end of the uh, German. Uh, overrunning of France, they held more than a million French soldiers as hostages. The Germans by 1943-44 are trying to force young men into forced labor in Germany. The rationing system is causing extreme heart, um, hunger in even in villages like uh, Gren. Uh, the Germans are um, stealing their Normandy cows. Uh, to say the least, they despise buys the Nazis. And for the people of Gren, on D-Day, on that morning of D-Day at 2.38 in the a.m., that 160 men just floated down into their village was such a revelation. And I don't exaggerate to my readers. 20 years after the fact, on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of uh, D-Day, the parish priests compared the paratroopers coming to the village of Gren to God sending his only son, Jesus, down to earth. To them, it was like a miracle that here all of a sudden in the midst of their suffering comes 160 paratroopers. And one of the key things that why the paratroopers decided to stay, why the commanding officer uh, made the decision to stay in the village of Gren is the people asked them to defend him defend them. And one other thing I want to make about, about this is normally when we think of the resistance in France, we tend to think of people who were on the political left, who were socialists, who were communists. But the village of Grand is a very conservative place. It had voted for conservative candidates. It's a very Catholic place. It's a very traditional place. But they simply hated the Germans. They despised the German occupation of their of their country and that the fact that the Germans were interfering in their daily lives. And so uh, they were prepared and did prepare to risk everything to support the paratroopers and to um, uh, risk their lives in supporting them. You described it as you, you recount how they describe it as, you know, basically, you know, coming down from heaven and, 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 and in, in very, uh, you know, spiritually uh, uh, salvationistic terms. And yet, as you also know, that's not that's not necessarily how the paratroopers themselves saw it, because as, as you described, the, 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 the area around Grand, particularly uh, to, to the immediate south of the village, is not really ideal areas for paratroopers to land. I was wondering if you could. Uh, describe for us the arrival of the paratroopers and, and the, the conditions in which they found themselves uh, immediately upon landing and, and how they adapted to it. Excellent question, Mark. When they landed, they hit ground around 2.38 a.m. Okay. When the paratroopers, uh, the, the, um, the trip from England to the coast of France was an awesome trip for the paratroopers. Uh, it was a clear night. Uh, they saw 5,000 ships steaming towards the coast of France. Uh, people described the airplanes, which were flying in the C-47s, carrying the paratroopers uh, uh, in, in terms of sheets of steel, that they were so close you could walk from wing to wing. They were feeling extremely powerful. They were, extreme, they were extremely confident. Then they hit the coast of France and flak, extreme flak, extreme anti-aircraft fire broke out, plus a very deep cloud cover, uh, which caused the, the planes to scatter. And virtually all paratroopers of the, of the uh, uh, 
three regiments of the uh, 82nd Airborne and the three regiments of the 101st, which is like some 12,000 paratroopers, virtually everyone was dropped somewhere off target. Now, the people we are speaking about here are those who are most off target. They are about 20 miles off target. Now, they hit ground at 2.38 a.m. on June 6th, but they don't actually hit ground. A handful of hit, hit ground, but most land in the surrounding swamps. That This is lowlands area that normally floods, and the Germans had also backed up the rivers to ensure that there was more flooding. So virtually most of the paratroopers landed in the so-called marais or in the marshes or swamps. And unfortunately, several of them drowned. They became tangled in uh, their parachutes and they... Um, uh, or and they landed in drainage ditches which were up to six feet and they were frantic and they tried to slash away at their risers but of the of the nine planes that constituted the uh, um, the headquarters company of the third battalion of the 507th regiment uh, five of them there were 100, 143 men on these nine planes five of them apparently drowned and this was fairly widespread throughout Normandy. A large number of paratroopers landed in the flooded marshes uh, and drowned. Uh, the other thing I'd like to emphasize to your to the listeners is that the men dropped at an incredibly low level. Some of the men dropped uh, believe that they dropped from as low as 350 feet in altitude. Others say around 500 feet. My father told me that that he dropped so low that when he didn't even have time to straighten his helmet up from the shock of the opening, that as soon as he began to straighten his helmet, he hit he hit hard. Now, he hit hard on hard ground, but a large number of his contemporary, of his colleagues, uh, landed in the marshes. Now, landing in the marshes was also one of the reasons why the commanding officer said that they would just simply stay in the village of Gren, which, which was at, at, they could see the church, which was at about 50 meters altitude, and they headed for that because they couldn't foresee how they could get through the marshes and then back to their uh, designated landing zone, which is uh, west uh, in the village of Amfreville, which is about 20, 20 uh, miles away from Gren. It, one of the things I thought was really fascinating about the uh, about your description of what follows is that it foreshadows a much larger operation later in the war. You, because uh, I was thinking as I was reading it, how much I saw echoes of Operation Market Garden. In, in the sense that you have the, this paratroop drop, it seems as liberation is at hand, and yet it's a very perilous situation and one in which the men are going to, you know, are, are, are going to come under furious assault and for which the civilians are going to pay a, a, a huge price. Uh, I suppose. I don't know as much about Operation Market Garden because after they returned, after the men of the 507th Regiment, which suffered 61% casualty rate in Normandy, returned to England, they were detached from the 82nd Airborne. So they did not actually participate in operation, uh, uh, that, that operation, uh, Market Garden. Um, one thing I would note here is that initially the casualties uh, landing in Gren were essentially only those who had drowned. The men didn't uh, make much contact with enemy forces uh, during the first few days. So it's slightly different in that sense. Um, the other thing that they hear that we must emphasize, one of the reasons why they stayed in the village is that the people not only asked them to stay, but then they went out into the marae and found their equipment 
for example, my father was a mortar man and the mortars were dropped in separate parachutes. So the people in the village went out of the marae in their boats and retrieved all the equipment, all the ammunition. They began to carry out reconnaissance missions for the paratroopers. And the most important and, and amazing thing is that the women of the village organized a feeding campaign around the clock cooking and provided two hot meals for the paratroopers uh, every day and had children bring the paratroopers bring to the paratroopers the food as the paratroopers were dug in in their foxholes. In addition, the women of the village surreptitiously entered other villages, including occupied villages, to purchase food, to obtain food, to feed the paratroopers. So it's a very, very unique situation that I wouldn't necessarily compare either to Operation Market Garden or any other operation. Um, and what's also extremely unique, as the uh, present-day mayor of uh, Gren would say, this is the only village in which 100% of the people supported the paratroopers. And I do you think that that had a influence in the decision of the uh, paratroopers there to stay with the village and defend them as opposed to withdrawing uh, closer to the landing beaches? Oh, oh it's clear, it clearly did. It clearly did. It clearly influenced the commanding officer. It clearly influenced um, uh, the men in general uh, that they were so welcomed that, uh, that they were prepared to stay and defend the village. And given that the village villagers were prepared, the villagers met in the church on June 7th, all the men met in the church on June 7th and unanimously voted to support the paratroopers. In addition, then the women of the village, uh, led by the owner of the local cafe, just organized all of the women in this feeding campaign. In fact, the villagers were so enthusiastic that when going out on reconnaissance missions with the paratroopers, they wanted to carry arms. And the, the paratroopers told them, you're not in uniform. If you're caught, you'll be immediately executed. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can't carry arms with us. But absolutely. And, you know, this would this sort of bond. And of course, I mean, I think the heart of the book is about the bond that develops between the paratroopers and the villagers. Um, uh, each of them in their own way committed to the ideals of the American Revolution and the French Revolution of liberty, equality, and fraternity. And they ended up, you know, it, it, the thing is that uh, the paratroopers telling them not to carry arms as a way of, of trying to protect them from, from potential reprisals ended up not saving them. And that's where we get into the arrival of the Panzer Grenadiers and 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 their reaction and, and your description of their arrival. I I, I felt did a really good job of, of of explaining why it was that they were so vicious because you know they're, they're being they're being ordered up to, to deal with the invasion and they're not just simply getting in trucks and driving up to the front. They're being attacked. They're being delayed. And and I and I you know it's 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 impossible not to think that that didn't somehow make them very. Uh, you know, bitter and, 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 you know, eager for payback. Yes. My, my father would later tell me and my brother that his favorite airplane was the P-51. When the, <laughs> when the uh, 17th Panzer uh, Waffen-SS Panzer Grenadier uh, Division moved out towards Karata and running right into Gren, uh, they were, it took them about two days longer than they thought to travel the 200 miles because they were constantly harassed by the P-51s. They were constantly being bombed by the 50, and strafed by the P-51s. So they had to go on small roads. They had to try to move at night in order to get there. This had left them in an extremely angry mood. And of course, it had caused a significant amount of casualties. Uh, so they are in, you know, they're in a, a relatively... Uh, 
angry mood when they attacked the village of Gren. Now, what I should emphasize here is that there were the village of Gren was attacked on Sunday, June 11th into the early morning mornings of Monday, June 12th. There were three attacks. The first attack was probably by a local or a, a unit that was local to the area and probably was made of of, of force volunteers of Ukrainians, etc., cetera, uh, who attacked the village on the morning of, of uh, Sunday morning, 11 June. That was a complete and total rout of the uh, uh, invading forces. Uh, they, they showed poor military tactics and literally uh, the paratroopers killed hundreds of the invading forces early that morning and didn't take take a casualty. The second attack occurred, a probing attack, then was taken over by the Panzer Grenadiers, who by this time had arrived uh, in midday June 11th. And then finally, uh, they launched a full-out assault on the village on the evening 11th, 11 June, being supported by heavy, heavy uh, guns, some forms of things that were akin to artillery, heavy mortar fire, etc. The uh, paratroopers were able to hold out, but in the end, they simply ran out of ammunition and had to with and would have to withdraw. And then becomes the second part of the story of that their withdrawal was relatively successful, again aided by by the villagers. But it was withdrawal that was not total. They had to leave behind the wounded. They had to leave behind the doctors, and that's where you be- that's where you begin to see the the wrath of the Germans when they uh, occupy the village, and you begin to see how the how they begin to take out their frustrations on initially the uh, Americans who have been left behind, and then upon the villagers themselves. Right when when the Panzer when the uh, Waffen SS arrives in the village, my guess is I can't prove it. They were hepped up on things like speed, methamphetamines, etc. It was a common tactic to uh, feed uh, drugs to uh, a blitzkrieg type of soldiers. Um, and these were very young men who were 16, 17 uh, years of age. In addition, many of them broke into the stores of, of the in the wine cellars, etc. and began to drink heavenly. They were all drunk. But what they carried out in the village was uh, simply uh, war crimes. They, you know, one man said, one German said, we've killed a thousand, you've killed a thousand of us and uh, now we're going to take our revenge. Now, I think when he says a thousand, I think he was also referring to the P-51 attacks in the, in the preceding days. What the uh, Waffen-SS did was that they found several badly wounded uh, paratroopers in the church. Um, they, those who could walk were forced out by bayonet. They were constantly bayoneted and forced into a pond and drowned. Several of the men were still alive when they were forced into a pond. So they killed several, uh, several, uh, uh, U.S. paratroopers that way. They also, um, uh, essentially they walked, they, they captured all of the medical personnel and probably including the battalion surgeon, and they murdered all of these people. Of those that they had made prisoners of war, particularly on the flank flank regions, and these included some some paratroopers from the 101st, they uh, took them two to three miles away, made them made them uh, dig uh, their graves, and then shot them in the back of the head. So overall, they executed 19 uh, uh, U.S. Uh, paratroopers. In addition, they killed the parish priest and 
uh, a monk who had been ministering to the wounded paratroopers. Their crime had been that they had they had uh, helped the wounded paratroopers. They also murdered the two housekeepers of the priests who were both in their 80s. So they murdered four uh, villagers. At a certain point, they lined up all the villagers and said, we know you've been helping the paratroopers. Uh, tell us who's guilty. Not one of the villagers would break. Unfortunately, an officer came and said, um, uh, enough, we've got other things to do. Their mission was to move on to Karata. Uh, but they did execute 19 um, uh, paratroopers. They murdered four of the villagers. Subsequently, other German forces burned, burned the village uh, to the ground. And they also forced the people into exile where they had to leave the village of Gren until it was uh, re-liberated uh, in the, uh, the late summer of 1944. Um, despite all of this, 78 years later, the people refer to the paratroopers as the liberators or our paras. Uh, not one, not not one tinge of regret uh, for what for what they did. Uh, they simply say a price had to be paid for our liberty and freedom. And the paratroopers came for our liberty and freedom, and um, uh, that's the way it, that's the way it was. The other key thing I want to emphasize to potential readers is that this is just half the story. There were ultimately about 160 uh, uniformed personnel in the village of Gren. Probably about 50 died from either being executed or dying from uh, battlefield casualties. Uh, but about 110 survived, and they only survived because, again, the, vill the villagers kept faith with the paratroopers. About uh, the largest group, led by Captain Brummett, were able to make over a two-day, two-three-day period. They they had they had a rally point. They organized and they withdrew in good order, and they moved at night. But at all times, they were guided by both villagers of Gren and other villagers from the surrounding areas, warning them of where the Germans were, what were the best ways to move through the uh, marae, and eventually they made it to safety. Then another group. 21, including my father, were hidden for three days in a barn by a French farm family. And then other individual villagers hid people for a day or two or three in their homes. So ultimately, about 110 made it to safety. Now, you know, to, to, uh, to emphasize here to anyone who might read this book, when the villagers of Grant did this, they were risking their lives. If they were caught doing this, they would have been immediately executed. Their children would have been executed. The elderly would have, in the family would have been executed. Yet they were prepared to, to pay that price. And indeed, of course, the Germans did catch a handful of people aiding the escaping paratroopers and executed them. And you explained the, in, uh, your, uh, at, near the end of the book about how the, the – it was so key to that bond that endured in the decades after the war. You you, you talk about the returns, especially we, we, uh, in, in in more recent decades, about uh, veterans returning, visiting with the villagers, renewing those those ties that were that were formed in in such extraordinary circumstances. You also describe how the village recovered from the destruction that the Germans wrought upon. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about how they maintain those ties and, and, and what form those ties took. Right. Well, the ties for a long period of time were broken. For example, the farm family, the, the Rigos, did not know 
if the 21 people that they um, had hidden for three days and then they arranged for a very large boat to go through the canals and arrange for someone to punt the boat through the canals with the 21 men, they never knew what exactly happened to them. Because these men were soon, the men themselves thought, oh, we're, when they returned to safety, we're now heroes, they're going to send us home. No, they sent them back for six more weeks of combat in Normandy, and then there's the Battle of the Bulge, then there's the jump over the Rhine, and etc. So the bonds were kind of broken with neither the paratroopers nor the villagers knowing what exactly had happened. The paratroopers did not know that the village had been burned to the ground. They had not known that the people had been forced into exile onto the roads for two to three months. Um, and it took a long period of time. And gradually, a paratrooper or two would return and contacts were made. Some of the, of the uh, relatives of paratroopers who died began to try to make inquiries. There were some, 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 some immediate contacts. But basically, the, the villagers were focusing over the next 10 years on rebuilding the village, in part through assistance such as the Marshall Plan. It took about into the mid-1950s for the village to recover. Uh, the church had been bombarded by the Germans, and so they built a church a little bit lower, uh, a brand new church. Uh, they built some memorials. There were some there were some uh, there was a general knowledge of what had happened but not real uh, thorough investigation on the paratroopers part they'd had so many experiences through the six next six weeks in normandy the battle of the bulge um uh the jump of the rhine etc the battle of the bulge tended to make the greatest impression on them because it was so cold uh you know many of the men had had their feet amputated um uh because of being frostbite etc they just had so many experiences it was very difficult to process everything there were paratroopers at the time who, who told their young wives and said you know you know one day when we're retired and we have the money and we're going to go back to europe i'm going to go back to grant some of the paratroopers actually felt the the uh, the who became the commanding officer after the, the commanding officer was killed at Gren, uh, uh, Dave Brummett, he felt kind of guilty. He felt as if, well, maybe we had abandoned the people and paratroopers don't abandon people. We had withdrawn. And they felt maybe that the, the, the um, villagers felt resentful. They, of course, did anything but. Uh, we might just here go on a, a kind of tangent, is that by the summer of, of, of 19, by, by the end of the war in 1945, people in the village were, were regaining their lives, beginning trying to restore their homes, etc. But they were beginning to marry. And women uh, had gone out into the moray and had recovered um, the uh, reserve parachutes, which were made of silk and had fashioned first communion dresses, confirmation dresses and wedding dresses. And they were marrying in these kind of silk from the sky dresses of the paratroopers as a kind of visible sign of their continued support for the paratroopers. But really, there, you know, there isn't a great deal of contact until one of the uh, officers, Frank Naughton, who was a lieutenant at the time, but became a career military officer. It had always had been a kind of kind of 
you know, uh, eating him up a little bit that we have to do something about the people of Grant. And so it took until the 1980s where there began to be commissions and study commissions, etc. And a grand ceremony was held in 1986, where there were a whole variety of awards given by the U.S. government to the to the people of Grand for their bravery. Thereafter, as the men themselves who survived, and interestingly, virtually everyone who survived Grand made it all the way to Berlin. <laughs> That's impressive. Um, yeah, I mean, it just well, well. General Gavin had this saying. He said, "Replacements replace replacements," meaning that if you survived your first bitter taste of of combat, that you learned how to survive. And these men had learned how to survive in Gren, and they survived everything else. Many of them were wounded, but they survived. Um, so when the men got into their 60s, they had some money. They were retired. Virtually all the paratroopers had been relatively successful in civilian life. Then you began to see more and more meetings, more reunions. Some of the people of Gren, the, the, the two ladies who were particularly influential in hiding the 21 paratroopers, were brought to the United States uh, and attended reunions. Uh, so um, um then the contacts were made until as the paratroopers began to pass. And the last paratrooper passed at the age of 99 in uh, 2019. Unfortunately, he died of COVID, which is rather a bad, bad ending for him. Um, but, but it took a, a, a matter of time for the two groups to reunite. Um, uh, and now we really only have one survivor of the villagers, uh, Mart Rigaud, who was 12 years old and part of the, the group of people who, who saved the 21 paratroopers in the barn, including my father. She just celebrated her 90th birthday. Wow. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, probably just promoting this book. Probably just promoting <laughs> There's just one thing that I would like to to say to anyone who's listening to this podcast, I really hope you read the book, not because it's going to make me famous or do anything or that it's going to make money or whatever. What I really want you to read the book is because it's a compelling and inspiring story. These are ordinary people, the French villagers, the paratroopers, who did extraordinary things. Both sides were prepared to risk their lives to defend the other. And they were doing so basically on kind of a, certainly a personal relationship that they developed in the period from June 6th to June 16th, but more because they both sides adhered to the values of liberty and freedom, of liberty, fraternity, and equality. Um, we live in a pretty cynical and highly polarized polarized time. Um, this, is a, this is an inspiring and compelling story. And the key thing, it's a true story. It's a true story. And people can take heart from this. People can take heart that, you know, we don't have to live in cynical times. We don't have to live in polarized times. We can pull together. Um, and uh, I think if you read the book, you'll feel good. You just feel good. And again, I would emphasize this this book is by a professional historian. I've cut through a lot of the a lot of the chaff, a lot of the things were mythical about what happened here. I've simply told the truth. Uh, the other thing, again, of course, from my point of view, there's a personal angle. I mean, I've met Mart Rigaud. I've been at her house. It's an overwhelming experience to meet someone who made the life of your grandson possible. Uh, and this is the other people have had the same experience to meet the people who saved their fathers. 
uh, one person told me that when when they she she met uh, the uh, uh, the uh, people of the village of Grins that she just couldn't stop crying, you know, just crying uncontrollably. Uh, so I just hope people read the book because they'll feel really good about things after they read the book. Well, it's it, it definitely is a very inspiring book and about a very you know fascinating episode. Uh, I, I wish you uh, the best luck promoting it and getting the word out about it. Thank you very much, and thank you for the interview, Mark. <laughs>